That was, uh, did you see Rob? It was really quick. I mean, it was really fast. He's a fast talker, so I don't know what happened. That's, uh, I'm sure it's spiritual warfare on some level, and we, we lost that one, so hopefully we'll get another opportunity for that. You know what else we forgot to do is we forgot to take the offering, and uh, the offering is uh, a part of our worship. It's part of how we show gratitude for what God has blessed us with, and uh, it, it, it gives us the opportunity to overflow our blessing into other people's lives. And, uh, and there's just, it just feels so good to, to be able to recognize how much you have been blessed. And sometimes we get numb to the, the blessings in our own lives. And uh, when you really kind of step back and take a look at, at what you have, man, especially when you look at the rest of the world, it's, it can really kind of open your eyes at how blessed you really are. And, and it feels so good to be able to share that with other people. And so we consider uh, offering as part of our worship um, and so if you want to just take a moment now, you can uh, do that online or uh, you can uh, do that in the back of the, the auditorium here. So my name is Dan Kent. I am a teaching pastor and a stunt coordinator for Woodland Hills Church. Uh, and because of the technical malfunction, I don't have my notes up yet. So just give me a second for that. Was anybody here? Did anybody go to the Grateful Heart event. Clap your hands. I can't see anybody. So yeah, that, it was a big turnout. I was so surprised at how many people were there. And it was fun. It was kind of like this um, combination between like a coffee shop and the Grand Old Opry and some raucous party. It was, it was great. There was poetry. There was music. There were cookies. And uh, it, it, was, it was fun. There was dancing. It, was, it had everything. It was, it was fun. So uh, I think we have some pictures that John took that he's sharing. And it was fun. So uh, if if Woodland Hills has an event, seriously consider going because it was, it was worth the time. I also got to meet uh, Jeff uh, from Seattle who, who came out. He didn't come out for this, but he just happened to be here, so he went. So I got to meet Jeff. And it's fun to meet people when they come from other parts of the country and uh, people who are parishioners and so forth. We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are flying through the Sermon on the Mount at breakneck speeds. I mean, we're already into chapter six, and it's only been two years. Can you believe that? I mean, oh, man, just slow down a little bit, right? Am I right? Ah, man, so fast. And we're doing a little sub-series right now on the spiritual disciplines that Jesus talks about in chapter six. And, uh, We've been doing this for three weeks. It's called Getting Real is our, our series title for this. I get to do the spiritual discipline of fasting. That's what I'm going to talk about today. And it's so weird because this is like the type of topic that I love. It's a topic that doesn't get most pastors excited to preach about, you know, but that's usually where the best treasures are. And, and I think that there are some really cool treasures here. But at the same time, I got to confess, this has been the hardest sermon I've done since I've been here. I have uh, broke this sermon down and rebuilt it like five times. And my office is just a mess of papers and notes. And it looks like uh, some crazy genius got high on, on Coca-Cola and just like started writing notes everywhere. But I, I kept coming back to a couple things that I think are really important, and um, I hope that they are, and I hope they land with you. So, what is fasting? That's part of the problem, and part of my struggle with this sermon is that it, fasting, there's a lot of different types of fasting, and, and people use fasting in so many different ways. Uh, even in Jesus' time, you had like extended fasts, like Jesus did. He did 40 days without food in the desert, um, 
But then you had like kind of traditional sunup to sundown fasts, and that's typically what the Pharisees did. And then you had different types of fasts where they were extended, but they included food. Like Daniel, uh, he fasted for 10 days on vegetables and water. And so you have this kind of variety of types of fasts. And some of the fasts are reactive, where you lose someone you love to cancer or to war or something like that. And as part of your grieving and lamenting process, you fast. And, and I think that's because somehow the suffering of fasting sort of resonates with that loss and that need and that ache that you have with the loved one that you lost. But then other fasts are not reactive, they're proactive. They're, they're part of an agenda, they're part of a, a goal, a plan that, that you have. And that's sort of what you find in Daniel and Daniel chapter one. So you have different types of fasts with different kind of purposes and different types of structures. And it's hard to know, okay, well, what is Jesus talking about when he tells us we should fast? And um, I, I'll come back to that in a second. I think the first thing you should do is what Greg said, is make sure that whatever spiritual discipline you're engaged in, make sure that you have your spiritual discipline fixed inside of the right story. And the reason for that is because discipline, it, it's work, it's sacrifice. It costs something to give money away. It costs something to have prayer time every morning. It costs something to fast. It's work. And if you're not in the right story, then you're going to end up with, it's going to feel like a rule without any fuel, Greg said. And I think that has to be true because it rhymes. It's a rule without any fuel. There's no motivation to do it if it's not fixed in the right story. You need a story to justify the cost. So the question then is, well, what is the right story? And I think what we believe here is the right story is, is more than a story. It's, it's a reality. It's this reality that the creator of the universe, God of the universe, became one of us and he came to earth with an agenda. He came here with a purpose and that was to find his bride. That was to enter into covenant relationship with us. That was his purpose. He wants atonement. He wants at-one-ment. He wants that agape love relationship with us. Given that story what might fasting look like in that situation? If we are God's bride and, and he is coming for us, well, what would, it, what would fasting do in that situation? I think, um, I come back to uh, Acts uh, chapter 17 where it says, God intended that we, or they, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each of us. So, here, here's what the, I think Acts is painting the picture of here is that God, the creator of the universe, became one of us. He had an agenda. He came to find his bride and he's right there and we don't even acknowledge him. We're not even aware that God is here. And, and so fasting in this situation might mean making ourselves more sensitive to spirituality, making ourselves more sensitive to God's presence. Uh, because what can happen, of course, and you know this, the noise of existence can just kind of drown out the signal of God. We have so much noise, so many jobs, so many tasks, so many projects, so many shows to watch, so much music, so much food, so many parties, all these things that we lose touch with the fact that God is near and we can reach out for him. And that's what God wants. And fasting from noise, you could do a silence fast, fasting from decadent food, fasting from uh, other people, puts you in a space where maybe if you get rid of all of those material distractions, your spiritual sensitivity might pick up God's signal. 
And I think that is a beautiful way to fast. In fact, this is a lot of times what the mystics did. The mystics would go on these fasts where they wouldn't eat for stretches of time and then they would have these mystical experiences. They would experience God's presence. I have friends uh, and people who are part of this church who have also done that and have reported these things. And I think that that's awesome. And this is part of um, why this sermon was so hard for me. I felt like I, I needed to talk about something other than that type of stuff. Uh, because I feel like even though that is the story that God is here for his bride, there's more to the story than just that. There's more to that story. This, the rest of the story is God came for his bride and his bride had been seduced by a wicked suitor. His bride that he came for has been held captive by an enemy. And uh, and First John says this, it says, uh, Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. That was his, his number one priority while he was here. Now, the reason why he's here, big picture, like Greg said last week, the reason why he's done all this and the reason why he came is so that he could uh, establish this relationship with his bride. But his first priority, John says, is to first release us from captivity. He can't enter into this relationship if we're still being held captive by uh, a wicked suitor. And so I want to go in a different direction from some of the other kind of... Um, ways that people fast. I just want to explore this idea with you here. If you take this idea from 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus' priority is to destroy the works of the devil. That's his priority. And if you combine that with this idea that the Sermon on the Mount is his most important teaching, this is like his magnus opus, well, that seems to infer to me that if his priority is to destroy the works of the devil, and this is his primary teaching, the Sermon on the Mount must be more than a sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, I think, is a warfare manifesto. It's, it's, it's about overcoming the works of the devil in our lives, overcoming the works of the enemy in our communities. And if that's the case, then the disciplines that we do, they're not just religious activities. They are warfare tactics. They are ways that we can counterattack the spiritual attacks of this wicked suitor that keeps seducing us. And so... That's what I want to do. How, how do the, the disciplines help us become de-seduced? Uh, there's probably a better word for that, but I don't know what it is. The way that the Apostle Paul puts it is that we have become conformed to the pattern of this world. And the, the solution to that, and Greg talked about this last week too, is the renewal of our mind. And so I want to look at how fasting might play a role in that. But first... Um, we have to acknowledge that the audience that Jesus is talking to when he talks about fasting is very different than the, the audience here. Uh, Jesus was talking to an audience that uh, the renewal of their minds is going to look different than the renewal of our minds because he hung out with the poor, like the, the really poor, and he hung out with peasants, and he hung out with people who didn't have a lot. He hung out with people who were struggling with scarcity. And so fasting for a person who's struggling with scarcity is very different than what it's going to look like for us. In light of that, if you are in a culture and you're struggling with scarcity, fasting probably still works for you. In fact, uh, there's a lot of fasting. It's, it's called fasting unto the Lord is what it's, it's called. It's, it's this idea that we fast to confirm that, that God can sustain us beyond food. It's this idea that... Uh, 
I'm hungry and it's this fear that I have, this food insecurity that um, I'm going to die and God doesn't care about me. But fasting unto the Lord is this act of learning to find this secret food that Jesus talks about in John 4 where he says that I have a food that you don't know of. Uh, food for me is to do the will of the Lord. That's my food. And so fasting unto the, uh, fasting unto the Lord historically has been this, this quest to find this food that's beyond food, so to speak. Um, there's a, a really great poem about this. Edna St. Vincent Millay, she writes this. I drank every vine, the last was like the first. I came upon no wine so wonderful as thirst. I gnawed at every root, I ate at every plant. I came upon no fruit so wonderful as want. Feed the grape and bean to the vintner and monger. I will lay down lean with my thirst and my hunger. And she had come to the point where she realized that God would sustain her. She realized that she, uh, she could handle the pain of hunger. She could handle the pain of thirst. She was strong enough. God had made her strong enough to handle that. And she's sort of mocking her, her scarcity. She's mocking her thirst and mocking her hunger. And I can see where fasting would be liberating in that type of situation. Bring it on is what she's saying. And I think that that is awesome. Uh, however, we're not really in a time of scarcity right now. Most of us aren't. Some people in the world are, but most people in, in modern civilization are not in a scarcity uh, culture. We struggle with abundance. We're in a very different struggle than scarcity. And so, uh, in fact, I just looked this up this morning. In, in the year 2000, the CDC reports that 30% of Americans were diagnostically obese. Uh, by 2018, that number had gone up 33%, and now 40.5% of people are diagnostically obese. That was in 2018 before the pandemic. The pandemic did not help, all right? If you know that, I know that personally, the pandemic did not help. It's, it's a different situation that we're in. Scarcity uh, leads to food insecurity. That's the primary kind of challenge that you have when you're in a scarcity uh, time. Abundance, I think, leads to a different time. And, and our abundance here is unique. I would say that our abundance leads to what I call accidental hedonism. Uh, and I say accidental because, oh, and hedonism, by the way, just means you love pleasure and you love pleasurable food. But I say it's accidental because I don't think it's intentional. I don't think that we are immoral. I don't think that we are lazy. I think that we are being seduced. I think that we are being tricked with our food. That's what I think. And what I want to do is I want to look at Jesus' teaching and see if fasting can help with that problem that we are dealing with that is really destroying a lot of people's lives. So with that, uh, this is the verse for today. Matthew 6, 16 to 18. Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen in heaven. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. And there's two things here that I want to focus on. Uh, that Jesus says. The first thing he says is when you fast. In other words, he assumes his disciples are going to fast. He's affirming fasting. Fasting is good, he says. The second thing I want to focus on is 
don't show others you are fasting. So fasting is good, but he denounces making a big show out of it. He denounces social posturing with your fasting. And I think what Jesus is doing here is I think he's exposing fasting as an incredibly powerful tool of discipleship while simultaneously exposing a really dangerous trap that we can all fall into. Sound good? All right, let's do it. Uh, The first one, Jesus affirms fasting. And uh, (laughs) as I was studying all of this stuff, I just kept coming back to the Exodus story. And I felt like the Exodus story is important to what we're dealing with here. And in this Exodus story, this is found in the book of Exodus into the book of Numbers. Israel, God's people, had been held captive as slaves in Egypt for a long, long time. Uh, Over 400 years, they were under Pharaoh's thumb. And finally, after over 400 years, God comes to liberate them. And, and he, through these miraculous interventions, he comes in, he frees the Israelites from, from Egypt. Egypt tries to chase them down, but God does this miraculous act. He parts the Red Sea and the Israelites pass through safely to the other side and the sea closes up and now they have the Red Sea between them and Pharaoh's thumb. They are finally, after 430 years of being oppressed and being enslaved by Pharaoh, they are finally free. And, and those, I can only imagine how glorious those first hours would be, you know? Uh, just like, uh, look at, uh, like my ancestors never experienced this freedom that I had. And my parents and their parents and their parents, they never got to have this type of moment that I have. And they're there, and within two days, within two days, they start grumbling. And what they start grumbling about is food. They're hungry. There's probably not a lot of food there. But in particular, and this is what's most aggravating, uh, is that they start grumbling about how bad they miss Egypt's food. They miss, I mean, enslavement, in fact, one of them even says this, enslavement was better because at least we had Chick-fil-A. That's what they said. (laughs) The the Hebrew's a little fuzzy on that one. I I don't know. And I I think what's being said there is that the Israelites had become conformed to the pattern of their oppressor. And and here, I think, is a truth, is that even though now they were free, they, they still carried Egypt in their heart. Even though physically they were free, they still had Egypt in their heart. They still had been conformed to that pattern. And what this says is, it's interesting because they get to the other side of the Red Sea and God is calling them to a promised land. And if you walk from the Red Sea to where the promised land is, if you walk kind of briskly, it's about a two-week walk. It should take you about two weeks to get there. The Israelites wandered in this desert for 40 years before they finally possessed this promised land. And I think the lesson there is that it's easier to get out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of us. It's, it, it's, it's much longer to have that inner exodus than the external exodus. And for, for Israel, a big part of their exodus, a big part of their renewal of their mind, had to do with the taste that they had developed for Egyptian food. They had been fixated on all of the great foods that we used to have. And they grumbled about how they, you know, I wish I could go to Noodles and Company again and get the chicken wings and the pizza and all the things that Egypt had. And God heard their grumbling and he responded to them. He said, I I hear what you're saying. I'm going to give you manna. (laughs) 
Manna. Uh, manna was like this very bland, soft, kind of bready substance that they found every morning outside, kind of like dew. And they would collect that up and they would eat that. And uh, for 40 years, that's what they ate. That's what they subsisted on. For 40 years, they ate manna. And it's not like it tasted bad. It was just so boring. It was so, so boring. And when you read numbers, you hear them lamenting. Uh, uh, they're almost going mad at how boring their food was. But I think that was part of the cost of their discipline, is to get Egypt out of their heart. Um, kind of, I think the primary role that fasting can play for us in, in a culture of abundance is to counteract uh, what's been called hedonic adaptation, which is a really fancy sounding word. It, hedonic just means pleasure, and adaptation just means you get used to it. So we get used to pleasure. And uh, a lot of the, as I talk about this, a lot of the science that I, I have from this comes from a book called The Pleasure Trap by Dr. Lyle. And if this is interesting to you, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good read. Um, but how he sets up the problem, I think, is great. We are really, really good in our modern time at doing something that is really, really bad for us. <laughs> We've learned how to create magic food. We've learned how to create uh, food that activates pleasure in our brain. We understand now how the brain works, and we understand what causes pleasure, and through reverse engineering, we can now create food that activates that pleasure even more. So what we found out pretty early is that if we have sugars, fats, or salts, that makes our brain giddy. I mean, it just, it's a party up there when we have sugars, fats, and salts. So we, we put some of our best minds right now are sitting in laboratories tinkering away at ways to get more sugars, fats, and salts into our food. But not only that, we're really clever. Not only do we add sugars, fats, and salts to our food, but we also get rid of things that aren't sugars, fats, and salt because they're getting in the way, right? And so all of this fiber, that doesn't do anything to our dopamine. Out the window it goes. We don't need that. It turns out we do need that. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't create the dopaminergic reaction that we want, and so that's what we do. And we get so good at making food that's pleasurable, and, uh, and what happens is our brain, as we're eating this, it's like a, a stadium of Beavis and Buttheads headbanging up there. They're just having so much fun on this food, and every meal we eat, when we do this over and over and over again, we just keep bashing that dopamine pinata, eventually it causes problems to our pleasure sensitivity. And here's what's even worse, is that even though right now, more than any time in history, we have access, we've figured out the pleasure problem. We know how to create it. And so we can go 100 yards and there's always an oasis of pleasure at our disposal. We can go get pizza, shakes, candy bars, whatever. It's everywhere and it's all the time, 24-7. It's there tempting us. And, and here's the other fascinating thing. Even though we have the most pleasurable food that any culture has ever had in the history of the world, we also have the most depression simultaneously. And it's just baffling scientists at how depressed we are because we're so blessed. And the food... Tastes really good, but it's not working. It's, it's not making us happier. And there's a reason for that. Uh, the reason for that is it turns out that happiness is not dopaminergic. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that gives us pleasure, but it is not the neurotransmitter that, that grounds our happiness. That's serotonin. 
Serotonin is the, the neurotransmitter that grounds our happiness. And how do you activate serotonin? It's not with cream puffs. Serotonin is activated through getting a good night's sleep, hanging out with your family, playing a game with your friends, learning a new skill, uh, exercising, eating fruits and vegetables. Those are the types of things that activate our serotonin, which uh, progressively gives us feelings of happiness. And so what we end up doing, and we don't even know it, this is why I think it's not because we're immoral, it's not because we're lazy, it's because we're being tricked. What we end up doing is we end up trading. We want happiness, but we end up settling for pleasure. We want the promised land, but we settle for Egypt. And, and that's, that's the trap that we are all in. And that's the trap that we struggle with. Or maybe, if you're like me, maybe you even understand the science of this and you still struggle with it because you're addicted, like I am. I mean, I'm, I just, greasy food and fries and shakes and uh, soda, man, I just, I love it. And I, I eat this stuff and I, I look at broccoli, <laughs> kale, it's so boring. It's manna. That's what that is. That is manna. I don't want to get it off my plate. So that is what hedonic adaptation is. I've become so used to this stuff that that stuff doesn't taste good anymore. That's hedonic adaptation. Or here's another way to put it. Suppose like before modernity, let's say we all knew each other before there was civilization. We're all out in the wild together, okay? And, uh, and we're, we're out hunting. We find nuts and berries and seeds and, and fruit and vegetables. And let's say I have a potato and I bake that potato, uh, and it's good baked, you know, and it's, on a scale of zero to 100, my baked potato is probably, I'd give it a 40. It's a pretty good potato, you know. I look over at George, and George also has a baked potato, but George is putting some stuff on his baked potato. I'm like, George, what are you doing over there? And so I go over there to check it out, and he's putting salt on his baked potato. Hey, that looks good. Not only that, this guy knows his baked potato. He puts butter on it, that's awesome. He puts cheese on it. He puts sour cream on it. I didn't even think that. Wow, that's so brilliant. Then, this just blows me away. He starts chopping up bacon bits to put on there as well. <laughs> wow. And then he says, do you want to try a bite of this? I'm like, do I? Yeah, of course. So I take a bite of this, and this is a 90 on a scale. Of, I mean, this is, I had no idea a potato could taste so good. And then he's like, well, hey, man, I, I'm glad you liked it. And, and then George, uh, you know, he wants to eat his potato in peace. So he takes his potato and leaves. And now I go back to my plate. Guess what? My potato's not a 40 anymore. <laughs> I'm lucky if my potato is a 20. After having the magic potato? Are you kidding? My potato tastes like a shoe. I don't want this thing. <laughs> That's hedonic adaptation. This is also hedonic adaptation. George, who's figured out the magic of potatoes, has a 90 potato. I mean, that's a, what a blessing to have a 90 of a potato. He has the same thing tomorrow. Guess what? Our brains adapt to it. It's not a 90 anymore. It's an 88. And the next day, it's an 85. And eventually, the potato with all of that stuff on there just kind of tastes normal. It tastes like a 50. And the whole time that his experience of his potato goes down, the experience of a normal potato gets lower and lower and lower. That's hedonic adaptation. What happens is our sensitivity to pleasure becomes dulled by the foods that we eat because we're constantly barraging it with pleasure. And, and pleasure is good. The, the, the message here isn't that pleasure is bad. The, the, the message here is that no, pleasure is good. That's why we have to remain sensitive to it. 
It's, it's the people who are barraging us with dopaminergic food. They're the ones who are anti-pleasure because they are frying our pleasure circuits. That's the trap. That's the, the, the seduction that we've, we're all falling under. And the way to retaliate against that is to make our pleasure sensors receptive to God's pleasure again. It's through fasting. And that doesn't mean going without food. It just means going back to just normal food the way it's supposed to be in its raw form. Having a potato, uh, having broccoli, having stuff like that. Doesn't taste good. But guess what? If you eat that for a while, your sensitivity for pleasure comes back. And it might taste like a 20, but if you eat that for a little while, it becomes a 30, 40, 50, and it, it, it comes back. The magic food creates a bondage. It's, it's so good. It really is. But it, it enslaves us. After I've had the magic potato, I no longer want to eat my potato. It's a perfectly good potato, but I've come to hate it. <laughs> Bad potato. <laughs> and, and it's not the potato's fault. It's because my brain got all jacked up. And, uh, and, and so I'm not as free as I once was toward that potato. It's bondage. Fasting can help liberate us from that. Now, the other thing to say about this is this doesn't mean that pleasure is the enemy at all. This is the mistake that the Puritans made. They, they thought that pleasure is ungodly and they devised their whole lives to avoid pleasure. That is not true at all. God, pleasure is good. God gave us pleasure for a reason. But pleasure is also not the hero. And that's sort of what our modern culture has said about pleasure. Pleasure is the hero. Pleasure is neither the hero nor the enemy. It's just this really good thing that can be abused. And uh, I think in a, a time of abundance and in a time of the scientific advances that we've had, we've uh, accidentally abused that. And fasting could be a really good way to start to slowly liberate us from that. You know, it's early November here in Minnesota right now. I don't know when people are watching this, but uh, we're in what I call the dominoes of debauchery. <laughs> it goes from the candy bowl of Halloween to the candy yams of Thanksgiving to the candy canes of Christmas. It's just like one after another. And if you're in the north here in Minnesota or Canada, it starts to get cold. And you probably felt it this morning if you're in Minnesota. That was, it, was, it hit different today than it did yesterday. And, and what happens when it gets cold is your desire for fats goes up. And that's, that's natural. That's, that's a good thing. But it makes it so hard to eat well during this time of year. It makes it so hard to uh, fight against the temptation to eat things that are just really not good for you. And, uh, and now we got Thanksgiving coming up. And lucky me, days from Thanksgiving, I get to preach a sermon on fasting. That's wonderful. That's just my luck, you know. Um, but I actually think it's the perfect time because I think it's a time to reflect on how you manage your pleasure because we don't think about managing pleasure, but we should manage pleasure in the same way that we manage our money. How much pleasure uh, should I responsibly have? And, and so I, say, I look at Thanksgiving, and fasting doesn't say no to Thanksgiving. Fasting says yes to Thanksgiving. I mean, fasting is being taught by Jesus, all right? And Jesus, whenever there's a party in the New Testament, Jesus is the one who made sure that the party supplies were full. He's the one who made sure there was wine, bread, fish, everything. He's all about celebration meals. And so definitely do Thanksgiving up big, fill your plate, absolutely. But... Fasting just says every meal can't be Thanksgiving. Every meal can't be a celebration. Uh, and so you have to think about how can I recalibrate because God wants us to enjoy those pleasures. He just doesn't want to be trapped by the pleasures. And I fear that a lot of us have been trapped by it. God wants us to enjoy the world without being swallowed by the world. And fasting is a good way to combat those dangers. 
The second thing Jesus says is don't show others you are fasting. You see, in the same way that we could be trapped by pleasure and we're vulnerable to pleasure, we're, we can also be trapped by what other people think of us and we're vulnerable to what other people think of us. Uh, and the wicked suitor who has seduced us, he's really good at getting us to turn against one another in our opinions of each other. And, uh, and so in, in social scientists have, have known this for a long time that we, when we evaluate ourselves, we don't evaluate ourselves objectively. We don't evaluate ourselves on our own merits. We tend to evaluate ourselves through the eyes of what we think other people see us, how we think other people see us. That's how we evaluate ourselves. And it can, com- it can compel behaviors in our lives, like big behaviors. Uh, th- and there's a lot of research on this. One of them that I like is uh, the study on buying new cars. And they found that if, if a person buys a new card, a card, a new car or a truck, there is a tenfold probability that their immediate neighbor will buy one within a year. <clears throat> and, and that's just, we evaluate, oh, look, look how far behind I am. And that's how we tend to evaluate things. Um, and it's not just big things like car purchase either. We walk around and we suck in our gut. We, we laugh at jokes that aren't funny, which I appreciate, by the way. Thank you for that one. <clears throat> We, sometimes we're afraid to ask a question because we don't want people to think we don't know or we don't want people to think we're dumb. We are bullied by other people's view of us and we're, we, we, our behaviors uh, accommodate these fears. Um, we don't evaluate ourselves objectively. Uh, we walk around in a crowd of these reference points that we tend to measure ourselves by and, and they push us around. And it's worse now because, you know, when you're in a crowd and you see people, you don't really see them. You just see what they're projecting about themselves. There's a lot more to them that they're not really showing you. Sometimes, you know, when you're out in public, you don't tell people that, you know, you've been really depressed lately. You say, oh, I'm doing great. You know, that's what you say. And so you don't really even know how they're doing. Social media, a hundred times so. That's a hundred times more fake. So now we walk around evaluating ourselves off of fake people and mannequins, basically, is what we end up doing. And, 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 so, and God knows this. God knows that we get bullied by how other people perceive us. And since the very beginning, he's been fighting this battle against this tendency. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, he tells us, do not covet your neighbor's new car. That's what he says. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't even think about that. Be your own person. Uh, Because God's community was never meant to be ego reference points for one another. That's never been the plan for his community. Uh, Rather, the way that God wants us to evaluate ourselves has always been the same. We should evaluate ourselves based on what the Bible says about us. That we are loved by God with a profound love. A love so profound that it was worth his son dying for. That's how we should evaluate ourselves, not by how we think other people perceive us. Don't show others you are fasting, Jesus says, because it's not about them. It's it's not for them. It's about you. It's this type of of autonomy, this type of of independence that's required for God to have a real relationship with us. You you have to have this type of freedom from the opinion of others. Uh, What other people think of me, that's a type of bondage that we have to liberate ourselves from if we're going to have an authentic relationship. Uh, And I think this is sort of what Jesus is getting at when he says earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Don't swear on the king. Don't swear on the temple. Don't swear on God. You should be able to just say yes or no and your own trustworthiness should be able to back that up. You shouldn't have to rely on other people like that. You should be trustworthy in and of yourself. 
The way that Greg has said it uh, repeatedly, and it bears repeating because it's so, uh, I think, central, is that God lets us, the reason why God lets us do things that might not be good for us is because he doesn't want to force us into being anything. He wants us to freely become who he wants us to be. He does not want automatons. He doesn't want people who just mindlessly obey. Yes, God, whatever you say, God. Yes, Lord, whatever you say, Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't want that. And so he gives us that freedom. However, he also doesn't want us to be seduced into a different type of bondage or into a different type of obedience. And what can happen is we can mindlessly obey our hedonic impulses because of hedonic adaptation. And, and, and we can become hedonic automatons, and God doesn't want that. We can mindlessly obey social pressure. We can mindlessly become uh, social automatons, and God does not want that. Jesus calls us each into a personal exodus from both of these traps. When you fast, Jesus says, and you should, what Jesus is saying there is he wants you to enjoy the world without being swallowed by the world. Do not let others know you are fasting because it's not about them. Jesus wants us to enjoy community without being swallowed by community. Okay, so the takeaway, uh, since we're talking about food, this is like my sermon doggy bag, okay? This is the, the, take, the take home. And I don't really know what to call this. Uh, I, I'm going to call it shift your strive. Shift your strive, that's what I'll call it. And here's the idea, is we're so good at making food pleasurable, and, and we all kind of try to make, if I'm going to eat, what do I, how do I want my food to be? I want it to taste as good as possible. That's how I want it to taste. And so I do whatever it is to make it taste good. And that's the strive that I have. And that's why you go, and for a long time, people would buy a hamburger. And then someone figured out to put a cheese on it. And now that tastes really good. And going back to a hamburger just isn't as good anymore. And so people strive to get that up. And, and a cheeseburger, man, that's like a 70. But then you put an egg on there, you put bacon on there, you put all sorts of stuff on there and you're getting up to 85, 90. Instead of a bun, hey, listen, instead of a bun, check this out. Let's do a donut instead of a bun. Oh my goodness. Now we're banging on that 100 and this is like the best thing ever. And, and we're, we're so clever and we have all of this intellect and all of this creativity going to making this better. Shift your strive just says that's okay, but also maybe put that same creativity, that same intellect, that same energy into making normal food in its normal state more tolerable, more pleasurable. Trying to get a 30 into a 40, especially things that will help with our serotonin versus our dopamine. You know, try to get the serotonin type stuff more better. That's what shifting your strive means. You know, for example, um, I like baked potatoes, and I think 40 is pretty generous for a baked potato. I, I would say even like a 30. <laughs> but they're really good for you. And so uh, Barbara and I, we were trying to figure out a way, how can we make this baked potato better without any of the magic stuff? And so what we did was we, uh, and this is the creativity part. This is like the, the game plan, kind of, you know, strategizing. We took mushrooms and onions and uh, red peppers and some unsweetened nut milk, and we blended that all up into a gravy. And we poured that over the baked potato. And then we sprinkled nutritional yeast over it. Now that sounds really gross, okay? It sounds gross. And I, when she said, you know, she put nutritional yeast on there, I thought she was out of her mind. It's, it's yeast, you know? But it actually turns out it tastes like salty cheese. And, uh, and so you put that on there. And that's a good potato. It's not a 90, but it's also not a 30. I would give it a 55 or a 60. And I tell you what, if I'm getting a 55 or a 60 and also doing things that are boosting my serotonin and also doing things that aren't creating hedonic adaptation to destructive foods, that's a pretty good wager. That's a pretty good bet. I will take that. That's, that's, that's kind of what that means. 
There's this movie called Owning Mahoney. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's got Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. It's a true story. It's about this gambler who uh, he, um, he worked at a bank and he was losing gambling and he lost all of his money and he was in a desperate situation so he figured out a way to embezzle $10,000 from his bank and then he lost that. And then he's like, okay, well, I, I could do a little bit more. And he, he starts embezzling more. It turns out he's a really good embezzler, not a very good gambler. And at some point, he's embezzled $1.5 million from this bank. And the authorities have figured him out. And they're coming for him. And they're looking for him. And he's gambling at uh, this casino in Atlantic City. And he's at the high stakes table. And finally, as the authorities are closing in, he starts winning. He's winning at the blackjack table and he's, his chips are going up. He's at $500,000 he's at with these chips. And then he's at seven and 800,000 and the authorities are getting closer. He crosses over a million and you're thinking he might get that million five back. And the authorities are right outside the door here and he does, he gets the million five. He gets past 1.7, 1.8. Then he loses a couple hands, but that's, that's, that's to be expected. So he keeps playing. Well, he loses a few more, and now he's closer to 1.5 million. And well, he wants to leave with something more than the 1.5 million, so he keeps playing, and you know how it goes. He loses it all. It all goes. And the authorities come in and they arrest him, and he goes to prison for 10 years. But when he leaves prison, the, the probation uh, therapist interviews him and says, On a scale of 0 to 100, how much pleasure do you get out of gambling? And he says, 100. Like right away, 100, easily. Everything else in your life, driving your car, hanging out at the beach, playing with your kids, going on a date with your wife, what's the most pleasure you get out of anything else in life? And he said, a 30. And that's really sad, a 30. And his therapist asked him this question, okay, if we let you go, can you live the rest of your life with a ceiling of 30? And he said, yeah, I think I can. And as far as I know, he did. Uh, and and that's the same situation we're in. We are, we are held in captivity just like he was. And the question is, do you want 100 in Egypt or can you tolerate a 30 in the promised land? And what happens is those 30s, once hedonic adaptation cools off, those 30s come back to 40s, 50s, 60s, and they can liberate us from the, the pleasure trap that I think our wicked suitor has seduced us by. The last thing I'll say, uh, Paul Eddy, as I was kicking around some ideas for this sermon, Paul Eddy said, hey, you should make a distinction between freedom from something and freedom for something. Because if you talk freedom from something, well, then this can just be like a self-help kind of uh, dieting type thing. And it's not that. Fasting is not about your figure, all right? Fasting is about freedom. That's what fasting is about. And, and, and he's right. You need to have that freedom for. And where do we get that freedom for? What do, what do we have that freedom for? That's where the right story comes in again. The right story fixates us in a way that it gives us what we are fighting freedom for. And, and for us, the fact that God came to dwell with us and that God calls us into a promised land, uh, but the fact that we are hearing that call from captivity, that we've been seduced by this wicked suitor, uh, that we each carry Egypt in our hearts, that's the story that we're, we're in. And, and what we find is that between every captivity and between every captivity and every promised land, there's always going to be a desert. There's always a desert between those two. Between dependency and independency, there's always a desert you have to pass through. 
between conformity to the patterns of this world and a renewed mind, there's always a desert you have to pass through. And, but here's God's promise. If you decide to take that journey into the desert toward the promised land, God promises to meet you there. God promises to meet you in the desert and he will travel with you. Uh, I think it's fascinating. Manna in the Old Testament, it actually means bread of heaven uh, or bread of life. And in uh, John 6.58, John says, This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What Jesus is saying here is he is our new manna. What he's saying is that if we invite Jesus into our journey into the desert, if we invite Jesus into our personal exodus, then he will meet us there. And he, just like manna, he will nourish us, he will sustain us, he will recalibrate our hearts, and he will help us purge the Egypt from our hearts. And he will guide us from the seduction of our wicked suitor. Thank you so much for your attention uh, and thank you for coming out here. Thank you for watching on YouTube. Um, I have so much cool stuff that I cut from this that I want to talk about on the MuseCast on Tuesday. So check that out on YouTube. It's the MuseCast Tuesday at 4 o'clock. We have gathering groups that meet online and you can go to the website to find those, uh, woodlandhills.org slash bulletin and you'll find that there. We also have a prayer up here. If you need any prayer, you can come forward after the message. You can also join a prayer group online. And also the last thing I want to say is Heroes Gate is our children's ministry. If you want to come and join us next week, uh, that's awesome. It really helps if you can make an appointment. Just let, let us know that you're bringing kids so that we can staff accordingly. Thank you everybody for your attention and uh, have a blessed week and have a blessed Thanksgiving if I don't see you again.